the Radical Secular Podcast, a demand for justice, equality, and rational public policy. Subscribe at YouTube, Apple Podcasts and all the major podcast channels. Visit our website at theradicalsecular.com for articles, transcripts, and our complete library of episodes. Support us on Patreon and follow us on social media. Welcome to the Radical Secular Podcast. I'm Drew Scott. I'm Sean Prophet. And I'm Joe Kipinti. Today, we'll be starting our three-part analysis and breakdown of the HBO series, Show Me a Hero. We here at the Radical Secular will always highlight books, movies, and series that we feel showcase strong secular and or progressive values that have a particular relevance to the times, that make us think about the world a little differently, or that we just think are worth talking about. With all that said, we felt this miniseries, released in 2015, just two months after Trump first came down the escalator and rose to the top of our most hated man alive lists, ticks all those boxes. This week, we'll be talking about the first two episodes of the series, and the Radical Secular team will be doing more breakdowns of the later episodes in future installments. But before we get to any of that, or our weekly synopsis of current events, I want to remind you... Make sure to subscribe, hit the like button if you're watching us on YouTube, leave a comment or review, and most importantly, tell your friends to listen. And if you're in a position to support the show, please head over uh, to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the radical secular. We'd really appreciate your support. The Patreon page isn't much at the moment, but Patreon supporter exclusive content will be coming soon. New episodes of the show post Monday at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. The newest entry is by our esteemed co-host, Radical Secular co-founder, and our friend, Christoph Defoe. It's an August edition of his segment, Too Late News, in which he talks about some goals for both the Radical Secular team and himself. Head over to theradicalsecular.com and check it out. Now, let's see what everyone has got going on for t-shirts this week. Joe, let's see what you got going on. I got this one on. I've worn this before, but a while ago. Unity and diversity. All right. Now, the reason why I wore this shirt is because, considering the show we're going to be covering, I mean, this is what this is a hell of a challenge we had in this country to think ourselves that way. But it is a big national myth, you know. And and I want to explore that a little bit too in, in, in these in these shows that we're doing because we really do have to challenge. these narratives. We really do. We have to really critically challenge them. And I mean, America has never been united. I mean, we started out as, you know, very disparate settlers from the Middle Ages. It came from Europe, you know, medieval Europe. I mean, (laughs) the Puritans, right? I mean, how how crazy do you have to be to have to flee Europe for being too religious, right? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, and then, and then, you know, the, the settlers in New England were very mercantilism, were very mercantile, nascent capitalism. Mid-coast was, you know, the yeoman farmer types. And then in the South, you had medievalism, you had feudalism, you had plantation, you know, um, economies. And right from the get-go, we had very, very different visions that, that have really never really resolved themselves, even to this day. And this is what we're still struggling with. Well, I'm wearing today, I have a no justice, no peace shirt, and it says also Black Lives Matter. And 
I wore this shirt today because, I mean, it's obviously a good sentiment for any time. But uh, in particular today, that slogan was chanted on various episodes of this show. And it was chanted by uh, white people who were marching to protest this housing being placed in their neighborhood. So it was, it's just very interesting how it's kind of been co-opted. So the, the, the right wing has kind of co-opted some of the, the original tactics of the left. And so it is definitely a good sentiment, but obviously everybody has a different concept of what justice actually means. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. Right on. Well, uh, this week I'm sporting a Frenzel Rom t-shirt. Uh, they're an Australian uh, punk rock band, and it's got oh. it's a, it's a uh, St- Star Trek spoof that With... has a, a portrait of Leonard Nimoy, Dude, and in nice. one hand, yeah, one hand, he, well, in one hand he's doing oh. the Vulcan salute, yeah. and then in the other hand he's giving the middle finger. <laughs> and uh, I'd have to stand up and uh, mess up my setup here, but the bottom says "Live long, prosper, and get fucked." So uh, <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. That hits all the notes. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, we're talking about great television here and, uh, you know, it's it's always a good time for a good Star Trek reference here. Absolutely. Every show. Yep. So now we'll move on to our weekly breakdown of current events. Uh, the first topic being recent COVID restrictions being implemented across the nation. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, it is in- becoming increasingly difficult to deny that more drastic action is needed to manage and combat the pandemic. The irresponsible and dangerously ignorant individuals who refuse to get vaccinated are a threat to the health and safety of all of us. Their decision to not get their jab doesn't just affect them, but all of us, since it leaves us more vulnerable to the Delta and who knows what other future variants. More extreme measures are needed to end this pandemic than most Americans and many worldwide are willing to undertake. However, we did see that in quite a broken clock is right once a day moment, Amy Coney Barrett rejected an attempt to block Indiana University's vaccine mandate for students in their upcoming fall semester. This, to me, is a huge win and a big step in the right direction from a very unlikely source, no less. In addition, the city of San Francisco has announced some of the toughest restrictions for the unvaccinated, barring them from gyms, restaurants, bars, and other indoor gatherings. Hopefully we see more of this, because as much as it may not be easy, we need to suck it up and do what needs to be done to fight this virus. I'd like to bring up this chart showing where we were a month ago in terms of community transmission versus where we are now. The difference is quite startling, especially when you consider how readily available the vaccines are nationwide. Seeing stats like this, and with things like the Supreme Court rejection, it seems like we're reaching a point where more and more people are getting fed up with those who are unwilling to do their part. And by do their part, I mean, wear a mask and get a shot. It's not like anyone's asking them to storm the beaches of Normandy or anything. (laughs) So with these sorts of developments, are we reaching a turning point in what Americans are willing to do and let both the public and private sector do to fight COVID? Sean, I know we discussed this a bit last week. What do you think of these developments? I mean, I'm, you know, it's, this is just more of the same. And uh, Joe and I were talking about it a minute ago and before we started, and we're just we're at our wit's end. This is it's the same old libertarian shit spiced with lies. You know, this should be automatic, right? There should be no, um, you know, will you or won't you wear a mask or will you or won't you get a vaccine? This this is in any um, scientifically based society where we have 
technology and know-how that can save lives shouldn't be a question. It's not a matter of personal freedom. I don't understand this. It's like, this is a matter of a system. When you have a threat, you respond to the threat. You don't respond to the threat, you endanger everyone. With citizenship comes responsibility. I feel like I'm a just, I, we're just all broken yeah. records at this point. Um, we're never going to solve this, though, until we solve the problem of propaganda media generally. Because remember, convincing people to do things in a free society is a process where you sort of build messaging, you build good messaging, and people gradually fall into line. Or at least that's how it was maybe up until the 90s when Fox News and AM talk radio really got going. And now what you have is you have constant counter messaging basically rendering a certain segment of society to be completely intransigent. Um, and the more uh, somebody brought up the, I, the this example of how we all, you know, in the 90s, every kid learned that if you're going to dispose of six pack rings, you cut them so that they don't hurt animals. Right. And they were, they were using that as an example of a really successful messaging campaign. And I was going, no, it wasn't anything special. There was just no Fox News. There was no Tucker Carlson telling people to throw their six pack rings in the river specifically because it hurt animals. Right. And that's what's going on right now. They're, the right wing messaging is deliberately trying to hurt people. And of course, social media is a huge culprit. Disintermediation has removed all gatekeepers. Anyone can make a web page that looks as good as anybody else's. You know, this junk looks could be is not really distinguishable for a lot of people from the New York Times. And so what we're finding out, of course, is that unfettered freedom of conscience actually doesn't work in, in you know, in a free society. To have true freedom, you need guardrails. Yeah, like for, like we were saying last week, you know, freedom needs context to be a virtue. Yeah. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, you've been keeping a very yeah. close eye on the COVID stats and developments all along. What are your thoughts on these new community transmission levels, as well as the aforementioned regulations and rulings? Well, you know, we're blinder than we used to be, which is really kind of depressing. We, the data is just not being as forthright. A lot of states are just not reporting as much. We're testing less. Uh, Florida is, is the, the Florida reporting system is a basket case. They're not they're once a week. They're not even reporting counties anymore. It, it's like the red states are turning more and more towards like what you would see in you know petty dictatorships around the world. They just want to suppress information. It's appalling. Uh, our ability to tackle this pandemic has been reduced because of that. On top of what you said, Sean, with all all, all the intransigence around mask wearing and vaccinations and so forth. But on the, on the bright side, one of the things that I found encouraging, especially I was in, down in Florida this, last week, and there's a real lot of pushback against DeSantis or death Santis, as I like to call him. Death Santis, uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, a lot of communities are just defying the state government right now. Uh, and if you look at, for example, in Orange County, where they had an opt-out for masks because they had to, only 4% of the student body opted out. Everyone else wore masks and decided that was okay. So, I mean, that's, that certainly isn't 40% of the population anymore. So, you know, at a gut level, at a real fundamental visceral level, it's my kids level, people get to get it, you know, and, and that's saying something too, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, an another brief, uh, briefly, I wanted to turn to another corner of uh, COVID-related news that uh, I wanted to touch on, which was Scarlett Johansson 
and her current lawsuit against Disney. Now, for those who aren't aware, she is suing for damages related to Disney releasing the new Black Widow movie, an installment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on their Disney Plus streaming service instead of in theaters only. Apparently, her salary was tied to the box office gross. Now, on one hand, if she had a contract, then Disney should have probably worked something out uh, before this release. I can appreciate that she's a woman in an industry that isn't always kind to women and that Disney has obscene amounts of money and power in the entertainment world, which makes them the Goliath in this scenario, if we're making that analogy. But on the other hand, she herself has a net worth of about $160 million. And I'm not keen on the premise of her suit, which is essentially based around making a crowded theater the only way to watch a film during a pandemic. Now, Sean, we've talked about this before on social media and whatnot about movie theaters and their business model being flawed and how technology becoming more and more affordable has made it easier than ever before to have a theater-like experience at home. I mean, I myself have a 4K TV and a 5.1 Dolby surround sound system with a subwoofer that's comparable to a theater experience. So uh, what do you think of this suit and this development and what do you think it says about the future of entertainment and movie going as it relates to the pandemic? Well, I mean, you probably don't want to get me started on this topic because, you know, being somebody who was in the industry for a while and, you know, who it, it, I have, I've got some very strong opinions. <laughs> and one of those is I think theaters are becoming irrelevant. The only reason I ever want to go to a theater ever again is to like to see an IMAX film. Um, or maybe if there's something that's, that I really want to see in 3d, I enjoyed the last star Wars film in 3d. Um, but I might go once a year, maybe once every two years to a theater because there's just no reason for it. And the industry needs to adjust to this. I was actually happy when it, when, when they started releasing, uh, films theatrically and for streaming at the same time, because it makes sense that the, the whole industry has been based on selling films two, three, four, five, six times because of these different, you know, you got your theatrical window, you used to have your VHS, your DVD, your cable window, your regular television window, your foreign distribution window. It just goes on and on and on. And it's like, they're just feeding at the trough of selling this thing multiple times. Why not just make it so that you pay, you know, I'd pay anywhere from 20 to $50 to watch a first run film at home. Cause you know, you're gonna have your whole family with you if you have a bunch of people. And uh, you can do that. And, and it's a good deal for the consumer. And it also should be a good deal for the studio because they can cut out the middleman. There's no theater to, to, that gets a, a cut of this, right? So um, as far as stars having participation in box office, I mean, you know, they should be able to work that out. Yeah, I think so too. I think something should have worked out, but it does raise some interesting questions for sure. Uh, Joe, do you have anything you want to add here? Well, I mean, Sean, you're absolutely right. Technology changes things. The movie industry has changed dramatically. So has the music industry and many other, you know, cultural mediums. And that's to be expected. You go with it, right? And but in terms of the actual lawsuit, it's it's kind of depressing that uh, we've just lost so much touch with our basic understanding of civic duty and social contracts and just personal responsibility. I mean, to put people in danger when you don't have to, it, it, just is the thoughtlessness of it. I don't know the, the just the, the denial of it. I'm not sure what's going on in her mind, but it's got to be, a, it should be a consideration that you, you, you go and you work it out with Disney rather than, you know, a lawsuit. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what comes to mind. 
I'd be willing to bet, though, also that, I mean, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, it wasn't at all clear that there was going to be a Delta surge. And I bet you this whole suit was probably conceived when it wasn't, when the danger wasn't what it is now. And I just think that um, theaters shouldn't be open when we're in the middle of a situation like this, where on the one hand, if everybody was vaccinated, no problem, right? But since everybody won't get vaccinated, any sort of gathering place, whether it's a church or a theater, um, I don't care where it is. I don't care, you know, concert, you know, sports. I, you know, if you're getting together with other people, you're putting lives in danger. And that, you know, that we just we're not responding. We're just acting yeah. as if there's a this is a matter of opinion or something. Uh, especially indoor venues, which we know are much more dangerous. Uh, now let's move briefly to a story I want to very quickly follow up on, Andrew Cuomo. So, Sean, in our discussion about Cuomo in last week's episode. I compared him to Anthony Weiner, and we both agreed that he needed to go, despite anything else we may have previously said or thought about him. After mountains of pressure, including the resignation of his top aide and condemnation from Biden himself, might I add, Mm -hmm. uh, he has finally resigned. And on top of that, his successor is the Empire State's first woman governor. Huzzah! Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Now, again, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, guys, but I bring it up because one of the things that separates us from our knuckle-dragging GOP counterparts in the country is that we actually have moral standards that we put before political interest or a cult-like worship of any of our leaders. The Democrats aren't perfect, but at least we clean house when called for, and sometimes even to a fault, cough, (laughs) Al Franken, cough, cough. (laughs) But we got rid of Cuomo when we found out what a monster he was. We didn't make him our party's standard bearer or a presidential nominee. Uh, anything you guys want to say about the end of this frustrating and embarrassing saga? <laughs> well, you know, we also, as Democrats, are better at systems, right? And understanding that. And the system is working. It's starting to work. Now, people are being held accountable. These powerful men in particular are being held accountable for their bad behavior, for their sexual predation essentially. And it, the whole thing worked out. I'm glad that Cuomo's not there anymore. I'm glad he voluntarily stepped down. It, it shows, it, it gives the whole process legitimacy so that women can trust it a little more. And I don't blame women for not trusting it because it hasn't been working for a long, long time, if ever. And now it's beginning to, to work at least in parts of our society, right? Not so much with the Republicans. I mean, look who we have for the Supreme Court, right? But it, it is working in some places, and that's a good thing because sustainably you have to have these systems because in the whims of politics, the whims of culture, you could have one victory. It could be a great victory, but the next year or the next few years, you could have a whole different environment. And what you need is you need these institutions, these checks and balances that are going to be there and they're going to be solid. And that's what we're trying to develop here. So, yes, I think it's it's all looking good to me. I mean, it's, it's pretty positive. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's we stuck up for Cuomo five months ago or whenever it was when he first when this the investigation was first announced because we wanted to wait for the investigation. And he gave a speech at that time and he was, you know, he apologized. He was contrite and he sort of put a good face on. And the problem is now there's been an investigation and he gave the same speech again. Oh, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. You know, I'm sorry if I offended you, you know, kind of thing. And he just looks like an absolute fool 
He didn't take responsibility. He actually said he blames the culture. He says, I didn't change my behavior, but the line of acceptable behavior moved. It's like, are you kidding me? Tone you know, deaf. Yeah, completely. And, and and the thing that was that's that's been brought up multiple times is that um, men don't touch other men this way. And Cuomo actually is a bit, bit of a touchy-feely guy. There are pictures of him like touching men on the face and stuff like that. So he may have a little bit more um, of an excuse than a lot of people because that's just how he is. But this investigation that came out from the uh, attorney general of, of New York was damning. And uh, instead of trying to put positive spin on it, he could have um, acted much more statesmanlike. And to me, he squandered his entire legacy by how he responded to this. He's always now going to be remembered for the, as this creep. And Colbert was just ruthless and right on every single count. He did this little cartoon where there was a bullshit penguin that, that was like, as Cuomo speaking, the penguin like jumps every time he's, he lies. And the, it's, you know, finally, the penguin gets tired and can't jump anymore because it's just so many lies. Right. And I, I just it's just it's sad. I'm glad we hold our people accountable. But I mean, as as a man, as a, as a human being, he he disappointed me in a huge way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For sure. And, and, you know, we can't forget that you know, this kind of sexual predation, this uh, sexual harassment and and assault is very damaging. It's just a very damaging thing to to women and, and men, too, you know, who experience it. It's it hurts. It causes grief. It causes uh, causes people to have to 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 not function as well in in life. It's a burden that that people shouldn't have to carry. It's not hard. It's not hard to be respectful. It really isn't. Not Absolutely. So this week saw the release of the new Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, and surprise, surprise, the results are deeply alarming to say the least. Climate change, along with COVID, is the most significant issue facing humanity today, and we'll continue to keep spotlighting it here on The Radical Secular. Not that it is news to anyone who respects science, but the IPCC has confirmed what we already knew. The jury is in, climate change is real, and humans are to blame. This report makes that very clear. Some of the changes to our planet, such as rising ocean levels, are irreversible even over hundreds of years. However, not all hope is lost, as we can still reverse some of the changes over the next several decades if we significantly lower our CO2 output worldwide. We all treat this issue with the utmost importance here. But Joe, I know this is something that you are particularly passionate about. What is your reaction to the report? You know, think about it. This document has to be signed off by the very same government representatives that it condemns. And it's this powerful. So, no joke, right? They normally this there's um, a lot of equivocation that happens with these reports. There's a lot of politics and so forth, but they're just going right for it. They're not pulling any punches here. That's how serious it is. Um, the plan countries have put forward so far are, according to the report, insufficient. Uh, advancement in climate science has been unequivocal. As you said, Drew, it is a, it's humans are causing this. And if it weren't for human activity in this period, we would have seen a very slight cooling, in fact, naturally. And so 1.5 C, keeping it to that level, is a pipe dream. It's not going to happen. It just isn't. And we will probably see 1.5 C this decade. 
we're close to it now. And natural sinks in the world, the natural processes that, that sort of sequester carbon are now showing that they're emitting carbon. This is extremely ominous, right? Uh, like the, 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 the Amazon may be doing that. There was a study that showed that. We were talking about climate, climate amplifications where humans are the trigger, the, the catalyst to then engender all these natural changes that can really increase the climates. These things that we've seen through paleoclimatology over and over and over again that have been documented that happen in, in, nat in natural systems. So I think that what this report is saying is that rapid decarbonization is not enough when you really read it, which means we're going to have to do some real serious changes uh, to all of our political economy. We're going to have to sequester carbon back into the ground through different agricultural techniques, through technologies, through different practices. And um, the other thing that this report is telling us is that we're starting with a rad radically damaged biosphere to begin with, right? It's like the last, you know, thousands of years of humanity have deforested this planet. They've desertified this planet. We've had massive biodiversity loss across everything, especially in the oceans. And climate change is happening under these conditions on top of all this. So the only thing I can say is that the unprecedented is the new normal. And if we're going to solve this thing, we're going to have to, we're going to, have to do it now. And we're going to have to put all hands on deck to do it. And that's it. It's not... It, 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 I can't be any more serious, honestly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Sean, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I do. And I think that um, we have to understand that there are several responses to this that we've been seeing. The first, obviously, is denial. But there's another response that I really want to call out today. And that is uh, somebody made a comment on one of my posts about climate and she said something along the lines is nature is going to wipe us out all anyway. It's time for a reset. And this is a horrible, horrible, no good attitude. It is murderous. It is uh, abject surrender. And um, it is also a, a, mis a misinterpretation, like by claiming that nature is going to wipe us out. No, we have done this to ourselves. Uh, every, every climate disaster is a crime scene. The people responsible have names and addresses. And of course, they have the complicity of consumers who just want to keep consuming uh, fossil fuels and meat and other things without thinking about it. And of course, that's got to stop. But we already know this about humanity that left to their own devices, okay, people will continue to consume. And so it is up to our leadership. It's just like COVID, right? Uh, we have people who don't want their vaccines. You have to force them to take the vaccine, okay? And it's the same with climate. If you want people to stop emitting carbon, you have to put in place penalties. And of course, the fossil industry is, you know, is preventing that. They have, they have blocked climate legislation. We came this close to a carbon cap and trade scheme in 2009 when Obama had a majority and it fell by, it failed in, in the House of Representatives by like two votes. 
and he had a Senate majority, so it would have passed. And this is, you know, so these things have long-term consequences. It's endlessly frustrating to me. July was the hottest month. July of 2021 was the hottest month in 142 years of record keeping globally. And this problem, like Joe said, uh, there are now positive feedbacks. This is affecting food prices. It's only the beginning. We, we've seen cattle herds, you know, being sold off, dying off. Uh, Mexico has a huge problem with with drought, and and it's it, other parts of the world. People think that all we have to worry about is heat and fires and maybe hurricanes. They understand, but that's preposterous. What we really have to worry about is violence, destabilization caused by social breakdown. Absolutely. And we're about to test this thing. I'm I'm, I'm sure everybody's heard of this the nine meals rule about civilization. And the, and the rule is, is that if you can't feed people, they, they if they miss nine meals, they revert to barbarism to feed themselves. And we're going to start seeing that being tested in places. And that this is what really scares me is that this is not just, you know, somehow nature's going to wipe us out. No, no. We're talking about uh, the possibility of war and genocide wiping us out. And that's no fun, not going to be any fun for anybody. And there won't be any reset there's not going to be anybody to reset it for if if we can't feed ourselves. That you know, we first that happens, we go to a much smaller population, and after that, then it becomes uninhabitable for any humans. Like if we went to like six degrees Celsius or something like that, nobody can survive with that. You'd, you maybe in Antarctica, you'd get you know handfuls of people surviving after all the ice melted, but it's a very bleak situation. And um, I'm not a prophet of doom. I think we can survive this. But we have to take it seriously, and we have to do it now. Absolutely. Definitely. Well said. Well said. Um, so with that, uh, I'd like to move on to our main topic for the week, uh, an analysis and breakdown of the David Simon masterpiece, HBO's Show Me a Hero. Now, the show first aired two episodes a night back in 2015, so I thought that would be a good way to structure a breakdown from the radical secular team. In this installment, we'll be talking about the first two episodes, part one and part two. We'll get more into detail here in a moment, but as a quick initial reaction, what did you guys think of these first two episodes? Sean? Well, I got to be careful because I watched the whole thing in one sitting, so I, 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 it might be hard for me to limit my comments to the first two episodes. But the whole series, it was great. I'm, I'm grateful to you, Drew, for for making me aware of this because I, I hadn't seen it and, and it was really great. Uh, it was, it, it was an illustration though about the limits of majoritarian politics to solve problems for minorities, because we know that we got a white majority in America. It's shrinking, but it doesn't have to vote for rights for black people. That was, you know, that's a, that's something that it's, it's very tough when you're in a city where you got an overwhelmingly white population and, Black people need housing and white people don't want it like this is, you know, and and the nuanced part of this show was about the 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 type of housing, where it's placed, how it's designed determines its success or failure. So that was that was good. And also buried in this series is a healthy dose of critical race theory, looking at the history of building freeways, housing projects, redlining, all that kind of stuff. Really, really educational. And. We also have to look at this in terms of the new census and demographic changes that are going on, which, you know, this brings new focus to why and how the right wing began to direct its fire toward 
you know, quote, unelected judges. You always hear them talk about this, right? Legislating from the bench. This is their big boogeyman over the past 40 years. And this was a perfect example. This series was, you know, judges are often the only line of defense for minorities from the tyranny of the majority. And the whole story of Yonkers tells you exactly why right-wingers are so furious. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Joe, how about you? What'd you think? Well, I... Sean, I agree with everything you said. I thought it was very, very astute. Um, I would add that the show itself, the way it, the art of it, right? It was very descriptive and narrative, and it, it, it wasn't on the nose at all. So, in a way, it just showed you these things, and you could see them and, and judge them for yourself. So, I thought that made the series really powerful, right? And the other thing I liked about it is that it really sort of gives you a good description of the underbelly of local politics and also how racism functions at these sort of micro levels at these deeper levels of society in these in these you know in these boardrooms and in these meeting halls and so forth and in people's attitudes and and practices and it isn't just about using the wrong words or or you know it's so much deeper than that and this and this i think the show really gets to that Absolutely. I think you're I think you're spot on, uh, you know, as far as the underbelly of local politics, you know, um, I think in a lot of our media, you know, a lot of it showcases national politics and these sorts of local political stories, which can be just as important, often get lost in the weeds. So that was one of the things that I liked about the series as well. Yeah. Before we go into show me a hero to provide a little context, I'd like to talk a little bit about David Simon, the writer himself and some of his previous work. There are some who swear by Aaron Sorkin, but for my money, I'll take David Simon over him or just about any other showrunner any day. Not only is Simon the mastermind behind some incredible work, but he's also a staunch, take-no-bullshit liberal. As a recent example, former state treasurer, GOP Senate candidate, and raging, rotting twat waffle, Josh (laughs) Mandel, recently tweeted, quote, the founding fathers would have tarred and feathered Dr. Fauci, end quote. David Simon's response, quote, you useless mutt. In addition to enslaving other races and denying women the vote, the fathers had wooden teeth, bled sick people, and regularly defecated in cramped boxes in their rear yards. Epidemiologists and virologists would have blown their colonial minds, end quote. (laughs) So you can see why I like this guy. David Simon started working as a police reporter for the Baltimore Sun out of college from 1982 to 1995 and spent most of his time there covering crime. He was a union captain when the writing staff went on strike in 1987 over benefit cuts, and he was still pissed about everything that happened in that situation after it ended. He eventually took a leave of absence saying, quote, I got out of journalism because some sons of bitches bought my newspaper and it stopped being fun, end quote. (laughs) He then spent a year shadowing the Homicide Detective Unit in Baltimore and writing a book on his experiences, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, which was eventually adapted into the series Homicide, Life on the Street. And while that was a good show, Simon himself has said that it didn't quite reflect the book in the way that he hoped. In 1997, he co-authored another book, The Corner, which was also developed into a miniseries for HBO, the first of many and excellent and powerful series that he would develop for the network. The show received three Emmy Awards, including outstanding writing for a miniseries or movie for Simon and his co-writer, David Mills. 
From there, he began a collaboration with fellow writer and former Baltimore homicide detective Ed Burns, based on both Burns' frustration with the bureaucracy of the police department and Simon's frustration with his time as a reporter. That collaboration was The Wire. Now, The Wire is arguably some of the finest television ever produced. Even Barack Obama called it, quote, one of the greatest, not just television shows, but pieces of art in the last few decades, end quote. And it said that Omar Little is his favorite character, uh, which is kind of funny. I remember when Obama was talking about it, he was saying, now, now that's not an endorsement. I just find him to be an interesting character because Omar <laughs> Little is a murderous uh, stick-up man. Uh, but this is probably why Barack Obama agreed to do an interview with Simon back in 2015. The Wire was not just a great crime show, but an incredible breakdown of American society with each of its five seasons covering a different facet of city life and how they are affected by the drug war and how the flaws in their respective systems essentially mirror each other. The police in season one, the dock workers and unions in season two, the politicians in season three, the schools in season four, and the media in season five. Uh, I remember reading that Simon uh, said that if he was to do a sixth season, if they were going to do one, he probably would have done it on the immigration system. Um, but The Wire, despite its brilliance, never really reached the heights of success that other later HBO series did, like Sopranos or Game of Thrones, but it never dipped in quality. In 2008, Simon followed that series up with another collaboration with his writing partner, Ed Burns, Generation Kill, a TV miniseries adaptation of the book of the same name. Now, this series took a visceral look at the Iraq war and asked some really tough questions. It tells the story of the first 40 days of the 2003 invasion of Iraq as it was experienced by the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion and their embedded reporter, Evan Wright, who authored the book. Generation Kill was nominated for 11 Emmys and won three, including Outstanding Miniseries. In 2010, Simon created and developed another HBO series, Treme, a drama about people from New Orleans trying to rebuild their lives in the aftermath of Katrina. Set directly after the storm, it largely focused on all the elements of the city's music culture, but like The Wire, it was so much more than it appeared to be on the surface, addressing housing, crime, cuisine, corruption, local politics, and so much more. Tremay had such an impact on me personally that it actually inspired me to take a trip to New Orleans to experience Mardi Gras for myself back in 2017. I drove from North Hollywood, California, all the way to NOLA and saw everything in the southwestern United States that I ever wanted to see along the way. I went to the Grand Canyon. I stood on the exact spot in Dealey Plaza where Kennedy was shot. I even stopped by Walt's car wash and some other locations from Breaking Bad. <laughs> And that's not to mention Mardi Gras itself, which the music alone more than lived up to the way it was presented on the show. Uh, I got to ask, have either of you guys ever been to Mardi Gras? Um, I have been to New Orleans, never Mardi Gras. And I, I have to say, I'm not a huge fan of the city. It was unbearably hot when I was there in the 90s and not totally sure I want to go back. The humidity, like living in the yeah, Southwest, the humidity. California, Vegas, whatever. I mean it's just, we don't deal with much humidity here and going to the South. It's just, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. So, um, you know, but a lot of culture came from new Orleans and, and like rest of the, like the rest of the South, it's it kind of seems to be in a lot of ways, a culture of suffering. The, you know, the contrast between the old Southern aristocracy and the general inequality there. And it was just really tough for me just watching on television, seeing how Katrina impacted the poor neighborhoods disproportionately 
And this is another story that relates deeply to critical race theory, the design of those neighborhoods to be flooded if there was ever a breach in the levees. You know, that's, so, I don't know, New Orleans? We'll see, maybe I'll make it back someday. <laughs> yeah, what about you, Joe? No, I haven't. I mean, I've been to uh, Mardi Gras celebrations in South America, and I mean, one of them I went to was crazy. I mean, I, it was like dancing all night and incredible amounts of drinking. I mean, just fabulous amounts of drinking. And I, I never realized that alcohol could be a mind altering like psychedelic, because when you combine <laughs> it with like, with like dancing all night, like these rhythmic dances and, and uh, all that massive amount of drinking, it was bizarre. It was just intense. But I, I don't know if <laughs> New Orleans Mardi Gras is anything like that. But if it is, man, I, I got to go try it out. Yeah, you know, uh, when I was there, they were they were uh, serving drinks that were called hurricanes, uh, which I thought was, <laughs> you know, a, a, a solid reflection of the city's dark humor. You know? Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> for sure. But uh, so when Treme ended its four season run back in 2013, uh, fans of Simon's work, such as myself, were left wondering what his next project would be. So that brings us to 2015's Show Me a Hero. Now, so far, we've only discussed these series in general without getting into many, if any, spoilers, episode specifics or plot points or anything like that. But from here on out, we will be getting into spoiler territory for this series. So if you want to experience the show fresh for yourself, as well as have a better understanding of what we're talking about, this is your spoiler warning. Although I do have to wonder, can you spoil a true story? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Pause and go check out the first two episodes of Show Me a Hero on HBO Max and come back. We will be right here. So this series is set in late 1980s Yonkers, New York, and is based on the true story of Nick Wasisco, who at the beginning of the story is a young and upcoming city councilman looking to boost his political career. He's eager to ascend to mayor and is convinced by some party leaders that he actually has a shot. And in the process of campaigning, he uncovers a wedge issue that he can use to get elected. A federal judge has ruled that the city of Yonkers is essentially segregated and that they are required to build affordable housing units for low-income families. The largely white community is, needless to say, not thrilled about poor minorities moving into their neighborhood and are ready to vote for anyone willing to fight and appeal the ruling. Nick sees this opportunity and starts speaking out against the housing project, promising to fight it. Based on this, he starts gaining momentum and, to his surprise, wins. But the celebration doesn't last long, as immediately after taking over the mayor's office, he begins to understand that the housing projects simply need to be built, or the city faces litigation, fines, imprisonment for the city council members, even city bankruptcy if they do not comply and come up with a plan to build the housing. They really did a great job of underscoring this at the end of the first episode with the phone call from the lawyers to the mayor's office ringing during the victory party, like that nagging, irking feeling that your joy will be short-lived because you're forgetting something. Uh, I thought that was a masterful use of sound and editing to close out the first episode. What did you guys think of how episode one ended? Well, I got to say the story arc of Nick Wasisco from Young Political Opportunist to hero was very compelling. And the shift from supporting the appeal of the judgment against the city to it slowly dawning on him that he was now going to have to support compliance was the beginning of that journey. And, and it's really, it's, it's just, I have to reflect because he's driving around the city and 
everybody is just organically supporting him. I mean, he's comes out of nowhere and everybody's yard sign is, has got his name on it. And he, he just can't believe his good fortune. And this is all because they think he's going to be the, this white hero to save them from this uh, desegregation initiative that's been court ordered. So, um, and then, you know, hijinks ensue after he has to switch sides on that point. So very interesting, very, very compelling story. For sure. Yeah. And I think this series really converges a lot of these political realities that we face in America, you know, and it does so in a way that it really shows how relentless this, this challenge is to, for the entire justice project that we're all interested in, right? These, the politicians are vying for their own success, mostly, like he was at first. And then this phone call comes at the end, right? And, it key, and it's a ringing. And it's, this ringing is the beginning of a wake-up call, and it's the beginning of his transformation. It's the beginning of what you were just talking about, Sean, this really interesting story. Absolutely. So uh, being a fan of Simon's previous work, I was all in for this series right from the get-go when I first heard it was coming. But it wasn't until episode two that it really grabbed me, in no small part due to the city council meeting and town hall scenes. Uh, at the time that this was airing, the Trump campaign was only just getting started, which makes you think about Simon's foresight into some of these issues when you consider how much longer the series must have been in development and production before then. Uh, the parallels between the white rage we see from these angry Yonkers yuppies and the frothing at the mouth insanity we saw and still see at Trump rallies are so stark, it's quite shocking. Uh, there are moments that even give you some insight as to how Nazism spreads and flourishes when you hear town hall attendees discussing amongst each other that the Jews are behind the housing and other heinously hateful rhetoric. Uh, what did you guys find most striking about those scenes? Well, you know, it's like you said, this thing was in development, obviously, for years. And the time period uh, when the series was shot even was before Trumpism really took hold. And the whole thing is actually terribly unsurprising if you know American history and even in California. I mean, like we've seen this in my neighborhood of West Hills, which, you know, is actually the whitest and oldest neighborhood in, in L.A., which where I lived for 25 years. Uh, the racism is appalling. This is this is an area that votes two thirds Democratic. And yet uh, when I got onto for the first time, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, the Facebook community page for West Hills, the racism that's there is just appalling. And, and, and I mean, recently there were there was a proposition HHH, I think it was in Los Angeles that passed a few years back, maybe it was 2017. And it it raised sales tax like a quarter cent or maybe a half cent to provide housing for the homeless. And um, so one of those housing units was slated to be built at Topanga and Roscoe, which is very, you know, that's right on the border, the northern border of West Hills. And um, the vitriol that was on that uh, community page about that housing development, it's like, really, you guys are Democrats? Like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, and of course, maybe this was the third of the Valley residents who are not Democrats, right? Because there's a lot of them as well, but they kind of seed the opposition. And so what was going on in this show in Yonkers is something that, you know, in, in LA, people aren't marching, but the equivalent now is this 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 constant vitriol on on the community pages. And I had to leave the page and block a lot of people. And, and, and even Santa Monica, 
Uh, I've also had experience with something like 75% Democratic or more, and they turn out reliable opposition whenever, like the like the community town hall meetings that are held, public hearings, you know, whenever there's low-income housing proposed. And so this is absolutely bipartisan, and it's not enough to be a liberal or Democrat. This is why we need wokeness. I mean, this could help us define what it actually means to be woke. Fuck your lip service to Black Lives Matter. To me, I mean, woke people are the ones who are willing to live next to low-income housing and not pitch a fit, right? Are you willing to take a small hit on your property value so that someone else can have a place to live at all, you know? Or are you going to be so protective of your neighborhood that even the idea, you'd rather see somebody sleeping in their own shit on the street than, you know, put up nice public housing for them next to where you live. And so that that's all people are asking for. And you can't even give them that. I mean, it's just, this is what this whole series was about. And, and I think anybody who, who has still has a problem with this should watch this series. Yeah, definitely. I had the same experience of like, how this reminded me of so many other instances that I've seen or experienced. This is this striking, this universality of these sort of tribal sentiments, these racial sentiments that always seem to be there in society, no matter what it is, whether it's Nazi Germany or, or here or back in history. You know, any, some, it's always seems to, there's always this contingent that's always a problem. And at times they organize themselves into something far more dangerous. Some, some political movement like fascism or whatnot. And when I was watching the, you know, the crowds and so forth and the hatefulness and the, and, the, and, the, and the rage, there's something really bizarre and scary about these group dynamics. You know, how they just feed on each other and how the, this just, just, they create this, this kind of like this miasma of like rage, you know, when this happens. Um, and here it was again, you know, in this film. Yeah, the the mob mentality, absolutely. Um, so, in in addition to the politicians, we're also introduced to several other characters who live in the projects, uh, including Doreen, a troubled young girl whose parents are clearly worried about some of her choices, and Norma, a healthcare worker who is losing her sight from diabetes. We see Doreen's boyfriend selling drugs and having run-ins with the cops. But we also hear him talk about setting goals for himself in order to be able to take care of Doreen and their coming baby. Unfortunately, he dies suddenly, leaving her to take care of their baby alone. It's also worth noting that Doreen's father is played by Michael Potts, who had the very memorable role of Brother Muzone on The Wire. Like many directors and showrunners, Simon often uses many of the same actors in various projects, and many of the actors from The Wire pop up in various roles in this series. Uh, so we also see Alma, a single mother from the Dominican Republic, struggling to provide for her children, telling them she has to work and live elsewhere in order to make money for the family. So, guys, what are your thoughts on these characters and how they're presented and all of their honest virtues and flaws, uh, considering that they're the ones that the raging town hall attendees are screaming about? Well, what I saw was a collection of very strong families trying to survive in near impossible conditions of being warehoused into high-rise apartments absolutely not fit for human occupancy. <laughs> yeah, spot on. Yeah, very much so. Um, 
I mean, honestly, I look, I look at this and um, it, it, it's really depressing because we're still struggling with it today. So this show focuses a lot on the issue of public housing. And Joe, when we were discussing about doing a breakdown of Show Me a Hero on the Radical Secular here, you mentioned that you were going to be teaching a class on urban geography in the fall. So what connections do you see uh, between the subject matter in your course and the themes in this series? There's a lot. And let's start with the fact that the real problem stems from a segregated and racist society. And all of this is tied to civil rights. It's tied to urban civil unrest. It's also has a lot to do with white flight phenomena that happened in this country and the urban decline that's associated with all those things. American cities hit rock bottom in the 70s and 80s. And a lot of them recovered, but some of them haven't as much, like Detroit, for example. Um, what this series highlights is a shift during this time uh, towards scattered housing sites as an alternative. And as part of the solution to this bleak landscape that American cities found themselves in during this time. Um, and let's not forget the effects of housing, or lack of housing, I should say. It's homelessness. And this is why public housing became part of the picture in American cities. And the first public housing, in fact, appeared in the modern sense, appeared in the 1930s as part of the New Deal. In the, in the late 40s, new laws focused on providing houses, housing for the veterans uh, coming back from World War II and in combination with the GI Bill. And uh, it's important to note here that all of these beneficiaries were really white, middle-class uh, people or working class people. And that didn't really begin to change until the 50s when some of some court cases started to kick in and some there were some some changes at that level. At that time, large project, projects began to pop up in major cities as service the poor, uh, urban people of color and so forth. During that time in the 50s, though, people might not know this, four, there were four times as many units demolished in these areas than they were built under the auspices of er eradicating blight. So it was just another way of really just sticking it to people, right? Yeah. Uh, they didn't really provide more housing. <laughs> they, they got rid of tons of housing, hundreds of thousands of units. Uh, the projects themselves were mismanaged and very poorly funded, unevenly funded. And the architecture itself was also a big problem. There's a whole thing about if you, how you design the physical space really has a lot to do with success in social systems, right? And um, that all led to what you're talking about, Sean, there's just these inhuman conditions that, you know, just should never have happened. And uh, this is when HUD was formed, uh, a, a new cabin uh, secretary, uh, housing and urban development in mid 60s. And in part because of, of these challenges and this backlash and this resistance, it was arising to public housing. Uh, but at, even at that time, though, despite some court cases, to the contrary, federal housing segregation practices were still strong and doing and really much part of the problem. And um, I mean, they were found unconstitutional in the 19, 1949, but it didn't never really filtered into the into the process. Uh, there weren't any court cases. Uh, lawsuits and so forth at that time. There was, so there was just still effectively, the, the public housing still had this mission to segregate at an effective level. And um, 
Eventually, by 1968, some explicit forms of the segregation were banned. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was provisions in there that, in, that really encouraged more white flight by continuing to concentrate uh, people of color in urban clusters alone by themselves, despite all, all of the rhetoric, right, and all the laws. Eventually, lawsuits then started, right? And I think the first one was like in early, late 50s, or early 60s, but then it was more in the 70s and eventually led to the one in 1985 in Yonkers that, is, that highlights this, this um, miniseries that we were talking about. So the, the courts had created a, a framework to fight and challenge uh, segregation, but it didn't really kick in for a long time, but eventually it did. Um, so the resistance and trouble by the white residents of Yonkers uh, actually, sadly, ended up hurting efforts to provide more of these novel scattered housing units. Not that they were perfect, they have issues, but they're much better you know, than the alternative. And uh, because communities were scared by the, all the controversy, they were scared by the, the, the protests and so forth. And don't forget, all this coincided with a period of right-wing backlash. This is the, the Ronald Reagan era, uh, against all forms of public services, not just housing, right? Cutbacks, it coincided with the crack epidemic, which was a tra huge tragedy in urban areas. Um, it didn't, that certainly didn't help matters. And then as public housing fund funding was being cut, the result was that these anti-segregation efforts largely failed. And also homelessness came back to a significant degree in the 1980s. And, you know, it's been that case. It really, we're not having, we haven't moved that far from that position yet. We still have a long way to go. Well, it's really interesting because when you look at Reagan and his constant demonization, you know, the welfare queens, that was, right. that was part of his rhetoric. And it's just been this constant culture of victim blaming. And we saw that in the show. And I want to, I want to echo everything you said. And I think I also want to say that the show is really good because it highlights what good architecture for public housing actually means. And what it means is controllable space, uh, space that you have domain over instead of having these public areas that are just riddled with drugs and, and, and loud people and, and crime uh, in these common areas that, that, you know, can't possibly be policed. Right. And, you know, the housing units, if, if they were ever going to work these high rises, they needed governance, they needed security guards, they needed, right. you know, they needed, uh, and not cops, not cops that are just going to like arrest everybody. I, I'm talking about people from within the community who, who are actually paid to patrol and clean. And we know what anarchy does to a country. And, and the same thing occurred in all the projects throughout America. Uh, all these high rises, same thing. People were just left to their own devices and then blamed when things didn't work out. No one was in charge. No one was enforcing rules. Nothing was being repaired. Uh, budget cuts were, were 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 all the rage, you know. After Reagan, and you know, people give up when they feel hopeless. And lack of good management and cleanliness and dignity in housing projects is the surest way to create hopelessness in a population. Right. Um, so it's another. It's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's another positive feedback, right? The worse the conditions get the more people give up, the worse the conditions get, the more people give up, and it spirals. 
you know, and the drugs are out. right there and, and, yeah. and they, they represent their only escape. Right. So, um, but, but even beyond the drugs and the, and, and the, and the crime and the, the, just the squat general squalor. Okay. It was actually the design of those projects that doomed them. And, you know, even the clustered housing that they built for these, these residents still smacks of segregation, right? They weren't single family homes, they were townhouses. And even though they were located in single family home neighborhoods, they were still like less than. And um, so it's a band-aid, right? We, we, what we really need in our society to solve these problems is full inclusion of minorities in our economy. And then a couple generations have to go by so that all of these people are part of the middle class and are able to and, and are able to afford normal housing not you know so we don't just have a uh, diversity in this in the sense of pockets but we have more of a homogenous multicultural dynamic in a city where where everyone is able you know your neighbor your your neighbor of color isn't making you know 50 percent less than you are kind of thing right because they can't afford to live in that neighborhood if they are so if you want integration you have to have economic equality and we, we should be, there shouldn't be any ethnic neighborhoods at all, right? When you think about it. Sean, I just want to say that's a really good point about the anarchy. Uh, I think that without that kind of grassroots governance that we saw in the show, by the way, trying to establish that later on, mm -hmm. uh, not in the first two episodes, but later on, um, it makes a huge difference. Without that, things fall apart. And it ha whether it happens at a micro level, local level, or the, or, or the national level, it's basically the same dynamic. If you look at a white community, right? It's a gated community. They got a security guard. Nothing's going to go down in that neighborhood, right? Because somebody's watching. And it's just, it's crazy to me that you can have these high crime areas and there's no organization. There's no, like... It's not that the cops should patrol the area. That's that's not what I want because I think that that creates all these interactions, bad interactions, right? Where if the cops aren't a part of the community, then their presence is seen as hostile, right? So right. there needs to be patrolling from within the population. I don't know if that's a I don't know if that's government hiring security guards who live there. I don't know what the solution is. Like this is not my area of specialty in you know academically, but there are academic solutions and they're not being implemented as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual physical space has a lot to do with it as well. The kind of lighting, the kind of uh, hallways, the kind of uh, entrances, how the, the orientation of the homes in respect to each other, all of that either promotes community or destroys community. And all of that has been researched. It is some wonderful literature about that, you know, and it, it just has to be accessed. Yeah, yeah for sure. For sure. Um, so the, the title of the series is show me a hero but who the villain is seems much more readily apparent than the hero and that villain is hanks balone <laughs> he is the greasy vile sleazy embodiment of xenophobia itself as far as i'm concerned he leads the charge among those in the city council opposed to the housing by grandstanding showboating and making a lot of intellectually bankrupt bad faith arguments contrarily nick seems to learn over these first two episodes rather quickly that the housing not only must be built, but it's actually the right thing to do. So my question is, uh, since the events of this story, have we as a country become more like Nick, slowly learning from our mistakes and doing our best, or more like Spallone, angry, fearful, and xenophobic? Well, look, I mean, white extinction anxiety 
is, is killing America. That is our, I think that is driving all of this. It's driving the COVID insanity. It's driving climate denial. It's driving our inability to establish systems that, that take, that are, that are safety nets because white people are literally losing their minds. And this new census, the results that we just got, uh, which shows that I believe white people are now only 57% of America, which is less than it was expected to be. It was expected to be something under 60, but 57 is a lot under 60, right? And so um, it's further going to inflame their already off the charts paranoia. They know how they've treated minorities and they're very afraid of becoming a minority or even a plurality, right? And so we know this is all going to get worse before it gets better. And that character, uh, would you say his name is Spallone? He is the epitome of that. And, and there's always going to be, we, we've seen it. There's always going to be politicians who are just going to jump all over that shit, right? I mean, they are just all over it. Like, let, like, like those two, uh, the, the man and the woman who pointed guns at the Black Lives Matter protesters coming out of their home. This is, this, that is, that represents the entire sort of white scared demographic. Um, you know, with mustard on their shirt and just like, they're just, you know, culturally bankrupt, you know, living in the, in, in, uh, just in fear. And uh, it's probably going to succeed at some level, both local uh, state and nationally entrenching more of this minority rule for some period of time, because that they see that as the bulwark. They see that as like holding back the, the, uh, the onslaught of, of minority demographics, right? And we'll only actually ever have democracy again when we have sufficient numbers of minorities to overwhelm all the Republican redistricting and cheating, right? The dam has to burst. It has to burst or we turn into an apartheid nation. And we're headed in that direction, frankly. It's uh, once democracy is off the table for real, you know, there could be some real dark times because if you're not going to house them, it's like Charles Murray. We talked about this on the Charles Murray episode, right? He said the only way to restore property values in the inner cities is basically to get rid of the residents. <laughs> you know, so where are they going to go? What is the plan of the of 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 white people for if you're not going to house them, you're not going to give them assistance, you're not going to feed them, no health care. Where the only other plan for them is to is for them to die, right? Like you know, if you can't hack it in the capitalist system, death, right? That's what this is ultimately coming down to. So um, it is, yeah, I, I, I wish I had some better news about this. Yeah. Fair enough. The other thing about Spallone, I think, is another dimension to it that he uses all these sentiments, including his own, as a means to personal power. And, you know, politicians do that, you know, Celebrities like, you know, Tucker Carlson do that. And, and this, that's the other dimension that I saw in him, that he's really conniving about it and that he knew what he was doing. And whatever his sentiments were, like whatever his, was he, was he like one of those parents, those people out in the crowd just like screaming with their faces red about, you know, colored people, you know, pe people of color being in his neighborhood or whatever? Or was he like just, us. or was he just being real conniving? Like, oh, my God, this is a way I can get grab power for myself. And, yeah, I don't like those people, but that's not really it. I, so it was hard for me to tell what, which one, perhaps both. But I think what this show 
is kind of telling for me is that Americans have never really been a people. You know, a, it's largely a national myth, um, a nation building endeavor to create the, this mythology. Um, and it's working less and less and less. I mean, and the racism is coming out more and more and more. You know, a lot of the people in the crowd are saying, this isn't about race, it's about property values. <laughs> now, today you go to those crowds and like, yeah, man, it's about race. We hate those people. I mean, that, that's the kind of like, it, it's changed. It's gotten more visceral. Uh, and and it's no dog whistles are no longer needed. Well, and, and one thing is the same as the other. I got to say, yeah. like if you say, because uh, they kept saying, oh, it's about economics. Well, yeah, you cut benefits, you're going to hurt them. You're going to hurt yeah. those right. people, right? So that's a form so, of oppression in and of itself. It yeah. is, and so you can't just try to say, well, I don't care about their. They were saying, oh, well, if they can afford to live here, fine. Well, they can't, and you know they can't. So you might as well just use the N word. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I said, we've always been divided and the cleavages are along racial and cultural lines. Look at the Civil War. You know, look at, you know, what happened after, uh, after Reconstruction. Uh, look at the apartheid system in the South. Look at, you know, all the way through to my lifetime. Before, you know, after I was born, we were still having this deep segregation. It's, it's very recent, centuries of it. And, you know... So I think both things are true, Nick. I think I think we have uh, more of each kind. You know, we have uh, more Spallones, and then we have more. What's his name again? The politician. Cisco. Nick was Cisco. Yeah, was Cisco. Yeah. We have both of them. We have more of both, actually, in some yeah. ways. I think I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, so Catherine Keener's portrayal of Mary Dorman is one of the most compelling performances in a series loaded to the brim with compelling performances. In these first two episodes, it seems like we start to see her start to see the other, the air of her ways. Uh, she goes from frothing at the mouth during the city council meetings uh, to a point of being ejected by the officers to a rather reasonable phone call with Nick at the end of episode two. One of the more notable moments is seeing her reaction when she starts uh, hearing her fellow anti-housing protesters murmuring horrifically racist and Nazi-esque epithets while waiting outside the city council meeting. Uh, what are your thoughts on this character and how she develops in these first two episodes? Well, it was, it was masterful television. Nothing beats a redemption story. You really hate her in the beginning and you really come to love her at the end. And so, you know, she was a great character, very well acted. Um, that psychological journey that she makes, it's difficult and rare. She had to have something going on. She had to be, I don't know, you know, at least somewhat well-educated or, or um, psychologically empathetic in order to make that journey. And the vast majority of hateful racists, they just keep doubling down until they're dead. And, you know, as long as people are coming from a place of fear, they can't and won't see the humanity in people they hate. Yeah, I think the character is probably one of the most interesting out of many interesting and compelling characters, like you said. Um, uh, by the end of the episode, too, she really begins to question what these protests are really all about. And she starts to see, she starts to be, be able to see sort of like the currents of power behind them that are sort of egging them on and sort of structuring them. And that's what America needs. 
America needs more of that vision, more of that awakening to, to these power uh, dynamics that are happening. Americans are very bad about understanding power. And I think that for, for me, that's a wonderful story. She's, she's uh, personifying that. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely, for sure. Um, so the drug war, the Iraq war, the Katrina aftermath, public housing, it's pretty clear that Simon is particular about his projects and their subject matter and seems to gravitate towards topics of social significance. What do you guys think about these kinds of movies and series being harnessed as a tool for exploring and educating about these issues so directly? Are they effective in changing hearts and or minds? Because I personally found this series to be extremely powerful and I think it is capable of provoking some thought. Yeah, I agree. I think this, ser this series really affected me. Now, I know all this stuff intellectually, right? And I've experienced even personally some of it. Uh, but I was left emotionally drained by the series <laughs> in a good way. Like, I, I was, it was a piece of art. It really was. And what art's supposed to do is shake people up. It's supposed to really, sh you know, wake you up and make you think in different ways. And that's what, you know, this series did. And it wasn't on the nose. It was brilliantly done. I didn't hold your hand and walk you through it. It just simply showed you all this in a, a very compelling way. And that's, again, that's what made it powerful for me. Yeah. And for me, I, what I liked about the way that it portrayed the uh, characters of color was that they were portrayed as absolutely normal. They had dignity. They had, uh, yeah, they had hopes and dreams. You know, they weren't, you know, even though they had some problems, like, you know, some of them had drug problems, some of them had domestic problems and, 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 you know, but it was very straightforward and, and you, you could, you could immediately empathize with them. And that's why the, the, the series kind of made me sad because this is also set in the past. And I think that time in the late eighties, okay. A, a lot of civil rights momentum has been lost since then. And these kinds of, of lawsuits and desegregation efforts were really going strong at that time. It was only, you know, 10, 15 years out, or 20 years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And it was still, we still had, you know, we had, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was elected after that. We, you know, we had, we had multiple Democratic administrations that have done things. And, you know, it just seems like some of that, the, the, the backlash, like you said, Joe, Republican backlash, it's been severe. Uh, Trump appointed something like 200 judges. So how many more of these sorts of, yeah. of you know, legal orders are we going to get that are going to survive a Supreme Court challenge to do something like build integrated housing in cities, right? That's, that's like a, that's a tall order these days. And it makes it sort of seem like the kind of justice that we saw, you know, in the series be a, a thing of the past. And you know, again, California punted its housing reform bill in 2020 and, you know, one more time after doing this for multiple years. So if Democrats can't deliver on this in a blue state and we don't have the judges in the red states to make it happen, where's the hope that any, anyone can do this, can, you know, that we can ever achieve housing justice and desegregation? Yeah. Those are all good questions. Yeah, they are. Those are all good questions. Um, so do you guys have any closing thoughts or observations uh, here? 
Well, I think oppression is about disempowerment. I mean, we talk about empowerment all the time. It's almost become a catchphrase. Nobody really thinks about what it really means anymore. But it really is oppression and subjugation is about disempowerment. It's making people powerless. And so when people do become powerless, and it takes something to get them back and feeling that they do have agency in their lives. And so even when we were talking about how they, it was hard to form sort of organizing uh community committees to, to, to sort of manage these properties, that takes a certain psychology of empowerment, which has to be nurtured, has to be, has to be uh, worked on from, uh, because it's been so oppressed over generations of, you know, of, of time, not just but with individuals, but with generations, right? It goes back and back and back. And that's what we need to think about as well that this grassroots, very sort of uh, personal and psychological journey that we can make together as communities and we can help disempower people become more empowered. How do we do that? That's really another good question, right? We certainly, the government has a huge role to play in all this by providing the resources, right? They have the resources, we don't, they do, but we can provide as advocate, you know, advocates and as you know, activists we can provide that space and that help with that journey as best we can. I think that's one way to think about, and that's what happened in the 1950s with the civil rights movement. That's what it really was all about. It was, you know, down to earth grassroots, and and uh, unfortunately, the right learned from that and did it themselves later on. But I mean, I think that's one thing that's kind of hopeful out, out of all this is that we do have that avenue still, even though. The courts are being filled with right-wing judges and all of the stuff you talked about. I don't know, maybe I'm being a little Pollyannic about it. I'm not sure, but I think there's something to it. I think that there is a, um, I'm hoping, and I think it's true that there's a lot more Nicks, Wasiscos, and there are, you know, um, and also not just Nick Wasiscos, but a lot more uh, Mary Domains than there are Spallones out there. And I think the Spallones are very vocal. They've organized, they're very powerful. It's not a small group. It's a big group for sure. It's a large group, but I th I don't think they're the majority. I don't, and I think that we need to start to mobilize everyone else. I agree, and it seems to me also like what you said, Drew, about this being a really good teaching tool. It is, but it's on HBO, not ABC, right? And I looked at the at the viewing statistics, and it was like three or four hundred thousand people, right? We need yeah. millions of people to be seeing these these shows to see what the stakes are. And, and ironically, people who already probably agree with what needs to be done for desegregation are the ones watching HBO. It's like, you know, not a lot of conservatives, I don't think, subscribe to HBO. And if they do, they're not watching uh, liberal political shows about integration like this. So, um, but, you know, I, I am encouraged by what you said, Joe. And I, th I, I do feel this also that at a grassroots level, it feels to me like, Black Lives Matter was the start of something. That organization is maturing. There's a lot of grassroots activism. You know, we saw tremendous. We we, we see tremendous uh, pride in in our in our athletes of color. That, that were at the Olympics. We see we see strength 
And, and I, I, I am hopeful and I'm also hopeful about youth. Okay. Cause I don't think we talked yeah. about that. Nick was Cisco's age during the episode. The guy yeah. was younger than my oldest son when he became mayor of Yonkers and accomplished all this. And that is stunning to me. Okay. He was in his twenties and it just goes to show that young people have far more power than they realize. And let's hope that they use it to make some real change because my generation, your generation, Joe, you know, uh, has let them down in, in so many ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Although I do want to remind, do you remember, Sean, watching Roots when you were little? I actually have never seen it. I was riveted. I was really young. I was a kid and I was riveted. And so was everybody else in my, in my little circle. That show had an amazing impact on America. And it, because it was watched by, I think, two thirds of America, I mean, it was the, the it was on ABC was, or something, right? Yeah, yeah, it was it was watched by so I mean, just tens of millions of people. And I think it helped change the consciousness in many ways. And I think these shows do the same. But, you know, everything's all fragmented now in media, right? So no, we don't get those big numbers anymore. But if we have enough of these shows, then that's another avenue, right? Well, it was extremely well made. It was it was it was made with love. I mean, you could just tell the care that went into every shot in that in that series. It's like, um, and 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 my first was watching it. It was a little slow, and they started with that flashback of the end, and I was like, "What the hell's going on here?" And it took me a while yeah. to really warm up to what was happening in the series. And but by the time I was you know 10, 20 minutes into the first episode, I knew that I knew what we were in for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the the cold open is is a little uh, little strange, but it definitely makes sense by the end of the series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we'll get there. But uh, but I think that's our that's our show for today. And we'll be doing follow up installments to cover the remaining four episodes of Show Me a Hero. So be sure to subscribe and follow us on YouTube and social media to stay updated on all our future content. And remember, if you like our show, hit the like button on YouTube. Leave a comment, leave a review, support us on Patreon if you're positioned to, in position to support the show, and tell your friends to listen. Any and all of these help the show tremendously, and we appreciate all of your support. New episodes post Mondays at noon Eastern on YouTube and all the major podcast channels. We also publish new articles weekly in our journal at theradicalsecular.com. I'm Drew Scott. Thank you for being here. And remember, wherever you are, you can be radically secular. The Radical Secular Podcast is written and produced by Christoph Defoe, Sean Prophet, Joe Okipinti, and Drew Scott. Artwork and design by Tim Stetner. Post-production and theme music by Sean Prophet. Special thanks to our support team, Lindsay Brightman, Jillian Sky Jacobs, and Lori Field Okipinti.